Welcome to Pullback, the podcast where we usually challenge ourselves to try something new in ethical consumption. Then we tell you what we learned, fuck-ups and all. I'm Kristen Pugh, and I'm here with Kyla Hewson. And this is a special episode in partnership with the Canadian Philanthropy Partnership Research Network. Today we are joined by Stephen Ayer to talk about COVID-19's impacts and the prospects for a just recovery. Uh, so Steve is the president of Common Good Strategies. Um, he is also the lead researcher and author of the Toronto Foundation's Vital Signs Report, um, and most recently, the lead author and researcher of the Fallout Report, which explores the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic in Toronto. I'm wondering if just to start, uh, can you tell us a little bit about what the Fallout Report is and uh, sort of what it's trying to accomplish? Absolutely. So Toronto Foundation has been conducting vital science studies about the health of the city of Toronto since the mid-90s, looking at 10 different issue areas ranging from income and wealth to health, education, transit, all these sorts of critical issues. And we did a special edition after the pandemic that uh, really focused on across the 10 different issue areas we focus on, how have things changed? We talked to more than 60 leaders, uh, predominantly BIPOC individuals, explaining how their organizations, uh, their communities, uh, their neighbors, and, and themselves have been affected. And we summarized the, a combination of economic and social research with these in, in detailed interviews where we tried to understand you know, on the ground, what does this look like? Was there a particular finding that you think sort of struck you the most or um, was the most surprising to you? The thing that struck me the most out of the research was something that has gotten a lot of attention, which is the overall inequality of the situation. And it was just how widespread it was. We covered 10 different issue areas within that's probably at least 50 or 60 different issues. And almost every single area we found, we could see profound differences based off of income and profound differences based off of racialized status. And while the attention has been greatly on some of the unequal impacts of COVID on uh, racialized communities, particularly around uh, rates of infection. So when we wrote the follow-up report, we saw about 10 times higher rates of infection amongst the most racialized neighborhoods than the least racialized neighborhoods. We saw about five to six times higher rates of infections amongst uh, the lowest income neighborhoods versus the uh, highest income neighborhoods. Uh, but it was just almost every issue area we looked at, we saw these profound inequalities, whether it was education, and we see the students coming from the lower income neighborhoods who are struggling most, whether it's mental health, we see again, the folks who are uh, struggling most were those who are racialized and low income, as well as when we look at the unemployment situation, those who are most likely to be laid off, most likely to be struggling to pay their bills. In all cases, we were seeing it was uh, disproportionately racialized and low income uh, uh, parts of the city. And I think that was just the sheer scale across almost every single dimension we looked at was it was the combination of those that really struck me of how challenging this is going to be to have that just recovery. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I feel like that's one. Um, so Toronto bills itself as a diverse city, and it is in many ways. But the, the inequalities um, are really, really striking um, in terms of not only the fallout report, but poverty in Toronto in general. We've been writing vital signs for a long time, and our most recent vital signs uh, was called Growing Pains uh, Amid Narrow Gains. 
And uh, one of the points we really highlighted was just how much inequality had grown. And a lot of the things in the previous last year report, or I guess a year and a half ago now, was about the vulnerability in the city. So a recent study by the United Way of Greater Toronto looked at uh, how income had evolved over time. And they found from the 35-year period ending in 2015... Uh, racialized folks had seen their income only go up by 1% after adjusting for inflation, while white uh, Toronto residents had seen their income go up by 60%. And we see these sorts of trends show up over and over again. The small, narrow segment of the population has done phenomenally well, and a whole other segment of the population has been left behind. And I think this is what makes these sorts of inequalities you're seeing now so problematic, because the ch- situation had been a situation where people were being left behind. They were struggling with you know, your income has gone up by 1% after adjusting for inflation, whereas like in the de- last decade alone, housing prices are going up four or five times faster than uh, your income. So for folks who are just sort of uh, going through their day-to-day lives, they in many ways feel like they're falling further and further behind. And then you have the pandemic arriving, uh, eliminating many of their jobs, particularly for the, the most vulnerable workers. So it's really, I think, the, the challenges that we talked about in uh, our previous reports I think, like, and the things that we were worried about, uh, there are many cases, I think, where, you know, we talked about some of the risk of another recession came, but we never could have imagined that, uh, you know, this or anything. That's <laughs> and I think, like, we were signaling the warning signs of how vulnerable the city was because of these profound inequalities that have grown over time. I think this is why when you look after study after study, Toronto is one of the hardest hits uh, places, you know, in Canada, perhaps even like in North America right now, because of so much of the vulnerability it had going into this. Yeah, for sure. And I think what we're going to do with the interview is is pull apart some of the different themes from the report. Um, and maybe we'll we'll tease out that that notion that Toronto was kind of already at crisis levels on some of these issues um, when the pandemic started. Uh, but let's maybe start by talking about some of the report's key findings on um, the health and infections themselves. So can you can you tell me a little bit about the inequities that have happened in terms of who has been infected with COVID-19 and who has died from it? I know you alluded to part of that before. Yeah, and I think like... Uh, so- Building on the point I made before, we did see disproportionately it was low-income and racialized communities. Uh, these are typically folks who are essential workers, those who have to work in person. Uh, disproportionately, of course, uh, those who can work at home were not the ones being infected. So obviously, uh, I think it's well known at this point that seniors are at, are at great risk. But the intersection of things like low-income pre-existing conditions, you know, some of the sorts of overcrowded housing conditions that many racialized and low-income communities live in Toronto, they all cumulatively add more and more burden and risk. And I think this is why we're seeing such profound differences. I mean, when we talk about uh, four up to 10 times higher rates of uh, COVID infection in the the most racialized versus least racialized parts of the community, like that's not based on race. It's based off of these decades of growing and systemic issues that have culminated in like all of these risk factors all being pointed in the same direction. I think, you know, they all add up and, um, that was really uh, a key point. And I, I think uh, one of the things we really wanted to do with the follow-up report was emphasize that the infections are and the deaths are, are huge. They're, you know, very troubling. Uh, but it really is like this has been so all-encompassing that like every different aspect of what we cover in, you know, vital signs, the 10 different issue areas, all of the dozens of issues underneath it, every single one is being impacted. 
And so our focus was definitely we want to start off by explaining the context, but then also really focus on what the ripple effects are, both from like the fear of getting infection, the fear of like, you know, going to work, the mental health consequences of those sorts of things, as well as the direct, uh, you know, consequences of uh, directly getting ill or um, dying from the disease itself. Yeah, definitely. I, I am curi- curious, before we move on to talk about some of those knock-on effects, um, what are your, some of your thoughts on what needs to be done, either in the near future or in the long term, to um, improve the quality of public health and also um, to improve the equality of access to health supports um, in Toronto? Obviously, a whole variety of areas that we cover that I think are critical. I really can't talk about the topic without the uh, discussing the inadequate funding uh, of long-term care homes. and. I think the challenges that uh, predominantly for-profit long-term care homes have faced in the middle of this, a number of studies looking in Ontario in particular have seen that for-profit long-term care facilities have had much higher death rates and infection rates uh, than non-profit facilities. Uh, so I think like there's, there's a number of issues there to unpack, but one of which is there hasn't been enough funding. And then also the structure of how we decide to deliver these critical health services has a profound impact on the outcomes that we have. Uh, and then I think on the broader public health space, uh, there's a huge sort of um, uh, need for understanding the social determinants of health, especially in a city like like Toronto, where uh, the housing situation has gone very problematic. And that's affected many, uh, many folks who are living in overcrowded conditions because they can't afford to live on their own. Uh, it's had a whole bunch of uh, situations where people are living sometimes in buildings with poor ventilations or, you know, ones where like, you know, high rises where there's the great risk of infection. Uh, and then all, a lot of the things around um, uh, these pre-existing challenges around food insecurity and things like that. And I think it, uh, it's hard to exactly say what role that, you know, some of those things might play in, say, uh, the response to COVID. But, uh, you know, studies have shown like uh, black households, as one example, have 2.8 times higher rates of uh, food insecurity than uh, white households, indigenous households, uh, similar sorts of things. And when we look at a lot of the communities that are, you know, are most um, impacted by some of those public health challenges, they're also the ones that we highlighted uh, are experiencing the greatest risks here. So I think like there's so much different factors that go into it that uh, all sort of uh, need some attention. You mean there's no one Band-Aid solution <laughs> that would solve all of our problems? <laughs> Yeah, it would be a much shorter report. (laughs) (laughs) This report sounds okay. So full disclosure, I did not read it. Sorry. But (laughs) it sounds wild. How long is this report? (laughs) Uh, It's 120 or so pages. I think I wrote it over a couple months and I finished it uh, while I was in the hospital with uh, getting a newborn. So oh my goodness. Wow, really impressive work. Just, I mean, I'm going to have to read it now. <laughs> Thank you. So um, moving on to the next theme, um, and I think uh, your comments on the social determinants of health really lead into this well. Um, so the report talks about food insecurity in the context of the pandemic. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about what food insecurity looks like in Toronto and how it's changed over the last 11 months. Uh, I mean, a lot of the challenges we talk about growing inequality, we've seen increased challenges around food insecurity for a long while. Like one exemplifying factor we can see is looking at uh, food bank usage. We saw a big spike in food bank usage after the the Great Recession, which never declined back to the level it was previous. There's a continual ongoing pattern of increase in food bank usage. What we've seen in the pandemic is an acceleration of that trend in a fashion that no one's ever seen before. 
uh, Daily Bread Food Bank reported a 200% increase in new users. Uh, the number of people calling into resources like 211 uh, was about twice as high every single month as it was before the pandemic. And uh, obviously, those organizations are not equipped to be able to respond. And we talked to a number of the leaders in the organizations uh, that work in those spaces. And it was really critical, like folks like Paul Taylor from Food Share Toronto, obviously recognize the need for emergency support, the need for organizations like their staff funding to be able to provide people food support. But they really were prioritizing and emphasizing that what we should be talking about in our report was the system that causes such high rates of, of food insecurity and opposed to the actual rates of food insecurity itself. And there's a very, uh, you know, the food banks have played a very important stopgap. Uh, in the pandemic, but uh, it's income supports and systems that provide a safety net uh, that are our most critical. And that's the theme that we heard over and over again when we were talking to the leaders of these organizations was food insecurity is an income problem. It's not a food problem. And the other thing I, I think it was particularly concerning, especially as we go through now, as I mean, we're full sort of, uh, I mean, fortunately, hopefully we continue to see improvements in the uh at uh, the current situation, but as uh, government uh, funding that's been put in place to be able to provide financial supports runs out, like the organizations that were working on food security and the emergency uh, food relief efforts, they were very stretched. They had, did get some initial funding and did a, get a variety of funding from the federal government uh, and provincial governments and municipal governments, uh, but it wasn't enough compared to the uh, sheer and utter scale of which their demand changed. And uh, they are, of course, providing continuing to provide critical stop gaps. Uh, but like, I do think, you know, on, on the resource side, like when we surveyed folks who provided food, I mean, everyone said they were not prepared for a second wave. So I'm sure many of them had financial reserves that are completely tapped out now. So even if things do continue to uh, improve, the organizations themselves, many of them are in a very financially vulnerable position right now. And, you know, even if things improve dramatically and we see employment rates start to go up in the spring, et cetera, a lot of them need to rebuild these financial reserves if they want to be viable, long-term successful organizations. Yeah, yeah. So these food banks are experiencing much higher demand and at the same time, they don't have the resources that they need to, to keep up with it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that's really critical when we talk about the nonprofit sector in general is it's a very strange industry in the, in the sense that what other industry do you see huge increases in demand at the same time as your revenue plummets? So a lot of these food banks were seeing their, their fundraisers canceled, uh, their social enterprises shuttered. Uh, they may have been provided a variety of meals and uh, food delivery options that they, you know, they charge fees for to subsidize their core operations. Uh, they had gigantic fundraisers that, you know, often had great uh, support and all these were canceled at the same time as they had their biggest drop in revenue ever. And this is a problem across almost every sort of social service delivery organization we work with. All of them saw demand increase and many of them, not all, many of them did see their revenue uh, decline at the same time. So uh, for those who are trying to respond to these challenges that are emerging, uh, it's a completely unprecedented situation, and I don't think you can find many examples of uh, industries outside of the nonprofit and social sector that uh, have faced this experience of, oh, my revenue's gone down more than ever, and twice as many people are trying to get my services. Yeah, yeah, it does seem to be a uniquely nonprofit issue. <laughs> um, and actually, I think uh, that bridges well into the mental health impacts, too, because it seems like there's a similar story there. So I guess I'll maybe step back a bit and ask you if you could explain how the pandemic has affected mental health in the city. 
Yeah, I mean, I think at this point, uh, anyone who has not at some point in the pandemic had some mental health consequences. Uh, I'm quite curious uh, what they do with their lives, <laughs> how they spend their time. Uh, I think uh, all of us probably have something to learn. But uh, what we really see is that uh, the mental health consequences of the pandemic are substantial and growing. Uh, when we look at our uh, the follow-up report, uh, we it was interesting to see like uh, when we had data, for example, from uh, Ontario 211. Uh, they saw going into the fall where we sort of have that risk of a second wave is actually where they saw a lot more sort of people calling in for sort of support around addiction, support around, uh, you know, crisis uh, management and these sorts of things. So that initial six month period, I think, was a lot of strain. People, there was depression, there was anxiety, there was fear and isolation. Uh, but like the longer it went on, the more it actually triggered some of the most vulnerable and marginalized communities to actually have, you know, the crisis uh, response. And the studies that I've looked at this more recently, if just suggested like you know the depression and anxiety consequences of these things didn't go down at all through the winter in fact and it looks like you know some of the most more recent surveys suggest like things are as bad or worse than uh you know in the initial waves of the pandemic yeah i mean definitely i've seen people talking about the pandemic wall that everybody's hitting now so <laughs> uh, i'm curious um what are mental health organizations saying needs to be done either in the near future or in the long run to sort of address these mental health issues um, and the ramifications of dealing with them in after the pandemic is done, you know? We talked to a, a, we've talked to quite a few different organizations and I wouldn't say there was a single sort of area we saw uh, folks wanted to really highlight. I mean, I, I think, you know, when we talk to these sort of crisis lines, uh, you know, there's obviously the need for trying, you know, the resources to be able to respond effectively, but like, a lot of the issues that we talked previously talked about in um, Vital Signs also speak to the real risk here, which is so Children's Mental Health Ontario, for example, has been long been speaking about how there's an 18 month wait list for the most intensive uh, counseling for children. You know, for a lot of children, the struggle and this that they've been going through now are on a completely different scale than they've seen before. And going into this situation with these broken systems uh, really exacerbates the, the problem because there wasn't enough resources to respond to a lot of these needs before the pandemic, which speaks to, uh, you know, the holistic nature of it. And it's sort of mental health has become something that every organization in the nonprofit sector, whether it thought it was an arts organization or a youth organization or uh, all of them now have to think about mental health as part of their strategy. And I think that's the, the key thing is if you work with people, you need to think about their mental health right now. Because if you're trying to educate someone and you're not thinking about their mental health, you're probably not going to be doing the best job you can. And uh, I mean, in the initial stage of the pandemic, we talked to like education organizations that repurposed their entire budget to uh, focus on food security issues. Just like Success Beyond Limits was one that we talked to. That's a Toronto-based organization that during the summer uh, reprioritized their budget to focus on food security. And I think going forward now, that ongoing mental health piece is going to be um, part of everyone's work for, I mean, honestly, a long time. Uh, when we looked at previous studies of like that initial trigger of uh, mental health, like it often does long lasting. So I, I think it's going to have to be something that every organization is building into its long-term strategy, even if they weren't doing it beforehand. And I, I think the other piece that's really critical to note is when we were looking at this based off of income, there was profound differences in mental health challenges based on how difficult it was to pay your bills. If you're worried on top of everything else, how am I going to pay my rent? How am I going to buy food? 
you're obviously in a much more challenging state. And that's one thing that I think is really important as well in the mental health field is looking at that system that really, in some cases, people fell through the gaps. And how do you ensure that going forward, uh, people who may have now had to take out loans, people who borrowed money from their friends, tapped into all their reserves, may still be struggling to pay their rent. And they're seeing, you know, how long will I be covered on uh, EI with the new systems? So thinking more about how to continue to support the mental health of people who are in these really dire situations, sometimes trying to juggle um, the, the increased debt they've added because of this. And in the past, uh, sort of after the Great Recession, we saw, for example, evictions uh, continue to increase until about 2013 in Toronto, which is people deplete their financial reserves and put, puts them at risk for a whole array of other problems in the future. And so I think, you know, if you look four years from now, five years from now, it wouldn't shock me at all if we continue to see homelessness go up, we continue to see mental health challenges and emergency room visits and all these sorts of things continue to go on. Uh, any organization in, you know, in the philanthropic community, any philanthropist, you need to be thinking five, six years from now is these problems need long-term solutions, not short-term solutions. They obviously need a little bit of a temporary buffer, but every organization has to be building in some of these things for the long term because uh, you know, that idea of depleting your financial resources to respond to immediate pandemic, you know, pandemic financial challenges, I would think will magnify the vulnerability for years to come. Yeah, absolutely. I, I suppose on a different theme within that, because mental health challenges can often exacerbate family issues. Um, I do want to ask about the impact on domestic violence. Um, how, how has the pandemic affected that? Yeah, this is another area that unfortunately, of course, uh, we saw huge increases in, in domestic violence. So it was really hard when we were putting the report together to find, uh, you know, uh, systemic data. But one particularly worrying sign was looking at the Assaulted Women's uh, Helpline. They, uh, they reported uh, about a 75% increase in calls and predominantly around, uh, domestic violence. And, um, like it was very clear very early on in this. There was challenges. I don't know what the more recent data has looked at, but given that we look at some of the mental health things, uh, challenges that we previously talked about that continue to rise into the winter, it would very much surprise me if we didn't also see domestic violence, including, um, you know, I, I think I saw a study recently, which I hadn't really read in detail, but like talked about how more children are uh, going to the ER with uh, head trauma. And, you know, I think these are some of the consequences uh, in addition to the obvious. And then I think really speaking about the domestic violence situation without speaking to uh, the housing problems in Toronto is uh, kind of impossible. Uh, so we spent a lot of time in, you know, connecting with uh, a North York Women's Shelter. Mohini uh, Dataray, who's the executive director there, really emphasized that even at the best of times before COVID, you know, most women going into a domestic uh, violence shelter were turned away because there wasn't enough spaces. And that's a problem just in general with the shelter system in Toronto, but it's a problem more broadly with uh, the violence against women's shelter system. There wasn't any spaces. So if you're trying to flee violence and you're, you know, you go to the shelter and there's no spaces, uh, it's, it's, it's obviously problematic. And with the number of folks who've been struggling to pay rent, that system is just utterly at its, at its max. So there, and I think people are more reticent to say go couch surf or other sorts of, um, uh, solutions. So a lot of people are kept in these these situations for longer because there's no real easy option to be able to leave that um, that situation now compared to uh, previous. So uh, obviously there has been some uh, resources from the federal government 
allocated to uh, the domestic violence uh, in the shelter system and all these sorts of things. But, you know, it's, uh, you know, one of those things like the shelter system in Toronto was typically operating at 98, 99% capacity where like the city of Toronto said like it shouldn't operate above 90% capacity, which it, you know, it was never at the target. And this is again, the problem when you build a system with no flex in it, like even a small recession, I think could have caused some, there's some real problems to these systems. And now, Obviously, the, the challenges are even bigger. Yeah, for sure. Um, just one of many examples of how we're sort of already at crisis levels for a lot of issues in the city and the pandemic just pushed everything over the edge. Uh, let's let's talk about the economic impacts of the pandemic, though. Um, so I'm interested to hear sort of what are the economic impacts overall, as well as who's been the most affected and uh, and and how have they been affected the most? So high level, the economic impacts in Toronto uh, and Canada are not great. We saw immediate increases in unemployment that uh, are completely unprecedented. Things have started to improve in a lot of different factors. But when we look at Toronto right now, Toronto went from having a, a relatively decent unemployment rate to having one of the highest unemployment rates in the entire country up there with Calgary and Edmonton. And, you know, month to month, you might have a bit of variance of like which one of is the worst. But clearly, the city of Toronto bore a huge brunt of that. And one of the things that we talked about in the report was how across the entire country, we saw that low-income workers bore the brunt of the financial impact. Uh, so they were most likely to be uh, laid off, most likely to lose their hours, was higher wage workers were more likely to actually have seen their hours increase, sometimes through, uh, over time, sometimes not necessarily, we don't know like which of those are hours are compensated and stuff like that. Uh, some folks might have gotten raises in order to, you know, because they're being expected to work in more dangerous conditions, all sorts of stuff, things like that. Uh, we, that was a, a countrywide pattern. And in Toronto, we'll look at the top end, the we saw much higher rates of increase in hours at, than the rest of the country. And when we look at the bottom end of the lowest wage workers, we saw a much bigger decrease in hours. Uh, when we look at the most recent data here as well, uh, looking at post-lockdown, uh, these the low-wage workers, again, have borne the brunt of as shutdowns happened again. They're the ones who uh, are seeing their jobs eliminated. And there's going to be some significant consequences this goes on longer. I mean, it's hard to tell. Like uh, Historically, studies looking at long-term unemployment have suggested that folks who are unemployed for longer than six months have a lot more challenges and difficulties. And so many folks are now in that bucket. Uh, I think, you know, it's more than a million folks Canada-wide who are sort of in that longer-term um, unemployment numbers as we're getting into uh, that. And it's really hard to tell whether they're going to you know, share the same burdens that uh, long-term unemployment normally faces. Uh, but um, it's definitely uh, uh, going to be a challenging situation. And then, I mean, when we look at, I think, again, speaking to the inequalities, uh, you know, 23% of white Canadians, when we were looking at our data, uh, reported they had some sort of difficulty paying their uh, their major bills, and it was 44% of Arab Canadians and 39% of Black Canadians. Uh, so I think like it really does show like the the differences. And then when you get into like the unemployment rate as well, like you know a third of uh, Black uh, youth in uh, Canada were unemployed. I mean these sorts of rates are I mean sunny and unprecedented. I mean you kind of I guess you use those words a lot talking about the pandemic, but. I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's kind of ridiculous. I mean, uh, you know, one in three unemployment is, is, is very challenging. That has improved, but, um, it's an issue that, uh, is going to have long-term consequences for, for you who uh, have gone through it. 
Yeah, and I think the report talked about how um, people with disabilities have also been disproportionately impacted. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit more. Yeah, that was a topic that, uh, I mean, just in general, I think Canada needs to do a much better job at collecting information on folks with disabilities, uh, including their employment uh, status, their uh, just in general. Like the studies that haven't looked at it show much higher rates of poverty, um, much ra- uh, higher rates of mental distress. And, you know, when we look at a lot of the challenges around, um, I mean, we look at disability, both like physical and uh, mental disabilities and they have different consequences but like there's that huge combination with the isolation for a lot of older seniors who are stuck in the, their homes and weren't able to i mean they continue to struggle to access things and you know if you can afford to use instacart or uh, other sorts of things like they can mitigate it whereas some of the folks who can't uh, afford to that or you know were really you know reliant on uh, shopping sales, uh, these sorts of things like that's that's a particular challenge. Uh, all of which to say, I mean, we, we definitely saw uh, the, the, the studies we were able to find uh, suggested there was a much greater impact on on those with disabilities. From, you know, whether it was like people were struggling to pay, you know, additional medical expenses and you know all those sorts of things. But uh, I think um, it, it's an area that uh, you know we've talked about a number of reports. We need better data because like across outcomes, like folks with disabilities have have real, real uh, profound challenges. And um, I think, you know, the more data sources we can have to highlight how profound those are, like the more we can continue to emphasize some real action uh, needs to be done. And um, again, I, I think uh, going into this, uh, you know, the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit was 2000 bucks a month. Like if you're on ODSP, it's about uh, I'm not gonna say it's about 1100 to 1200 a month you get per month. Like when you say, when we responded to, you know, the pandemic saying, oh, you need at least 2000 bucks a month to be able to live, realize that the vast majority of folks who are on disabilities and unable to work are living on a fraction of that. And I mean, if you look at a city like Toronto, like, uh, good luck. Yeah. And just for listeners that don't know what ODSP is, it's the um, the disabilities um, assistance from the provincial government of Ontario. Um, but yeah, as, as you're pointing out, it's much lower than what the emergency response benefit has been Canada wide. I'm curious, um, what has been the impact of um, the CERB and um, the Canada Recovery Benefit, which replaced it? And also, um, what do you think is sort of the future outlook for for programs like this? Um, do you think that it should eventually lead to something like a universal basic income? Yeah, the uh, I think it's pretty undeniable that uh, the... Uh, the CERB and its replacement and the transition to EI provided an absolutely critical safety net. If we hadn't done it, a lot of these issues we talked about, I mean, they're, they're pretty substantial now. I mean, they're almost incomprehensible what would have happened if the government hadn't stepped in with these sorts of programs. Uh, I mean, the, the ripple effects to the economy uh, would have been, I mean, beyond sort of, again, beyond comprehension. So, it was absolutely critical they did that. And, you know, obviously a huge amount of money has been spent on that. So uh, it has drastically reduced food insecurity. It has, you know, improved people's mental health. It has had, uh, you know, a lot of these things, uh, if they not for that, it, like, you know, it would have been an utter disaster. So I think, you know, government should be applauded for what it did of stepping in very early and trying to put a substantial amount of support uh, behind that. You know, I think, you know, it's a very challenging sorts of thing for the government to try and balance, you know, these multi, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of deficit uh, with uh, trying to make these policies as inclusive and effective as, as possible. 
I mean, if uh, at this point, you know, there, there's probably a variety of things they could do to, you know, streamline and improve the uh, the programs that uh, we haven't necessarily seen. We see a number of economists and social researchers have, have pointed out, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, conditions that are letting certain folks uh, slip through um, and all these sorts of things. So there's definitely some challenges with the program. Uh, at the same time as um, if it hadn't existed uh, and it didn't continue to exist in, in the current form, like uh, there'd be millions and millions of Canadians that would have uh, suffered from unprecedented financial distress. Oh, including yours truly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That was actually something that struck me as I was reading your report, because um, the report was written while there was some uncertainty about whether a program like CERB would continue. So I thought that was interesting. I'm curious, uh, maybe we can move on to housing now. Um, I mean, if we're talking about things in Toronto that were already at crisis levels, maybe housing is the most stark. But could you talk about how the pandemic has affected access to housing in the city? Yeah, absolutely. I I did want to actually uh, cover on the previous topic, the one thing you did ask about, like the long term implications, uh, which I mean, a lot of the folks we talked to uh, were talking about big, longer term solutions for some of these problems. A number of folks talked about uh, you need for basic income. A number of folks talked about like, you know, the idea of human rights as a a framework for everything ranging from housing to uh, food security, all these other sorts of pieces. And there were a lot of uh, policy suggestions talked about in the report itself. I think the most uh, clear point that we can say from it is that, you know, people were struggling on $2,000 a month. And ODSP, Ontario Disability Support Program, Ontario Works are a fraction of it. And that's a huge number of, of Canadians who are trying to get by on like money that's completely inadequate, especially in major cities like Toronto, where, you know, rent is, is dramatic. I mean, in the past, you might have gotten more support through like living in um, subsidized housing and things like that. But as those options have declined and as a viable opportunity because there isn't enough of it, uh, you know, it's absolutely clear that those programs are inadequate to ensure that people remain, um, you know, eating healthy food and all these sorts of things. And the studies that I've looked at it have shown that, like, the consequences of people, you know, cutting their food budget, not eating vegetables, you know, all these sorts of things that come often from it. Like, because we have a public health care system, like, the costs don't make any sense. Like, people are using these systems more and they're they're struggling because, uh, so, like, it's not like there's a, a huge saving for keeping these things so low because they often lead to long-term disabilities and all sorts of other things that uh, mean that they're going to be taxing the healthcare system. So, I mean, the most clear th- thing that's just shown was that the existing support systems don't make uh, as much sense as we, uh, we might like. And, you know, we've kind of ignored some of that for a very long time. And, you know, those things have been uh, lagging inflation for, for decades. So uh, every year, it just means people get further and further behind. We need to rely on them. For sure. Yeah. So I, I'm wondering if you could talk um, a little bit about how, how have housing prices changed since uh, the pandemic began? And um, is housing security, like, is it worse than it was before? Is it about the same? The housing situation is a fascinating, uh, a fascinating piece because uh, the rental market and the um, ownership market are going in fundamentally different directions. And uh, part of this is when we go back to those sorts of inequities. Is uh, one of the studies we point to in uh, the report is how uh, renters have had their hours decreased twice as much as homeowners. So we start off in a situation of 
those who are renting are in a very, very different financial situation, typically, than those who own their own home. I mean, we see that, uh, you know, in a lot of jurisdictions in, uh, um, across the country, but particularly in uh, southern Ontario, we're seeing 25-30% year-over-year increases in detached housing prices at the same time as, like, the most recent sort of numbers suggest, like, a 27% decrease in average rent uh, downtown or something in that, in that ballpark. So you have one going down 25% and another going up by 25-30%. We've never seen such a huge uh, separation of those two factors. What the uh, what the implications I think of that are is that uh, a lot of folks on renting are are in real and profound financial distress, and I, it's really unclear to me what the end state will be if you know evictions start to go at what they could end up being. So uh, the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation estimated I think that uh, I think it was eleven percent of uh, more uh, sorry rental households in Toronto are in arrears. So. I mean, when you look at that, you know, it's hundreds of thousands of people who are behind on the rent. I mean, often it's not necessarily a huge amount they're behind on the rent. So there's some opportunity to make that back up, especially hopefully when employment starts to tick up. But like I said, I mean, the shelter system has like, you know, less than 10,000 beds. You know, even if a tiny, tiny fraction of those folks who uh, aren't paying their rent end up evicted and homeless, like that is a system that can't cope with it. So um, I think this is, there's some real risk there. And uh, I, the other piece is like, I think for a lot of folks, uh, particularly younger folks who don't own homes, uh, looking to see like, not even this can bring down the house of the, the price of housing is probably a, a terrifying uh, sort of realization that, uh, I, I, again, like you have to look at the price of housing in Toronto since 2008, I think it's up by 150%. And where is your income's up by 30%. Like, I mean, for, for younger Canadians and Ontarians and Toronto residents, like, I think there's a profound stress that comes with, like, realizing, like, you know, if your dream was owning a home and you're sort of uh, locked out. That's a particularly problematic. And it also speaks to a much bigger system of, you know, Canadians, by and large, the way they plan for retirement is home ownership. And, you know, the accruing of, of housing wealth has been the primary, uh, you know, retirement plan of a huge number of Canadians. So if the current generation is locked out of that, uh, and we have eliminated, you know, jobs with retirement plans, I mean, obviously, that's a very uh, long term consequence. But uh, I think if we aren't starting to think about how to have a a system that can help folks uh, accrue savings for retirement, or, you know, um, now, like, if you're going to rely on people to save for their own retirement, uh, like we need to do that now because it's not going to be uh, for a lot of folks housing wealth. Yeah, yeah. And in particular, because um, the job market is so bleak, especially for young Canadians right now. Yeah. So, I mean, we touched a little bit on the, the topic of evictions, but I'm wondering if we could drill in on homelessness a little bit. Um, can you talk about what the pandemic has done um, to the state of homelessness in Toronto? Yeah. And this was one that uh, was uh, an interesting uh, piece. Is there's a whole bunch of different dimensions to that. I mean, and uh, when we were studying it, one of the big issues at the time was homelessness encampments. And um, I think, you know, what happened to a lot of folks over the winter um, was the sort of when it got too cold for those homelessness encampments, which definitely, like, numbers were suggesting were growing very rapidly, is, is a 
a big unknown. I haven't uh, seen anything that sort of addressed how people coped with uh, with that. Uh, but definitely, like you know, the shelter system was hit its max capacity, and we saw a lot of overflow into encampments. Uh, we spent a huge amount of money trying to uh, make uh, homeless shelters. Uh, safer for the folks who are actually in them, because obviously as a congregate living environment, there's a lot of risk as well for for COVID. So, um, you know, and there's some a variety of interesting initiatives that I think folks have been trying to get going for a long time or in like modular shelter units that can be built a lot faster. And, you know, I think the scale of them may not be necessarily what everyone would like to, to grow, but, you know, some of these things have actually made some real progress where, you know, some of the advocates have been working on them for a decade and are finally starting to see some built. And I think, you know, with the, uh, there hasn't yet been a huge increase in evictions compared to what we could see coming up. Uh, the number of people who, you know, are behind in rent, if they, uh, folks start actually, uh, moving forward en masse with evictions, I think that could be, um, uh, where things start to become very challenging. And I don't think most landlords, especially the large landlords, really want the publicity of trying to evict a large number of people in the middle of winter. Into the spring, I could see a bit more um, sort of consideration on their end of whether it makes sense or not. The other piece now, I think that is 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 an interesting challenge with it, is people can make agreements to repay uh, the rent they've missed. So if people are missing their rent, the landlords do have a built-in incentive to try and want to recuperate that rent. Uh, whereas, you know, when we talk about the average rent in like downtown Toronto declining by double digit percentage, people may not necessarily be wanting to um, evict folks when, you know, the person coming in might be paying uh, a much lower rent, depending on uh, how long maybe units have been under rent control and other factors like that. So there is a couple of things that sort of prevent it from being uh, a huge incentive for folks to be doing evictions at the scale of which they could. And, you know, maybe once students come back or things like that, uh, there might be uh, some of the folks who are not able to make their back payments might be at more risk. And uh, the other point uh, we, we talk about uh, in one of the reports we wrote was uh, the typical Canadian household saves less than a thousand dollars per year. Um, that's a little bit uh, confused because like uh, some of those folks are drawing down savings because they're retirees. And so it's, it's hard to say like what exactly, you know, the appropriate sort of range is. But when you say like, you know, the average rent in Toronto um, for a new unit, it might be like 18, 1900. And, um, you know, if you're saving less than a thousand dollars a year, if you miss like one rent payment, you know, that's more than you're expected to save an entire year. So it will be challenging for some folks to make that up. And uh, I think the longer they have to make those repayments, the better off uh, and more likely they are to do it. If they, you know, even if, uh, I mean, there's a lot of debate of like whether, uh, how to go about doing, whether they need repayments or not and all that sort of stuff. But any sort of system that doesn't give people as long as possible to make up those written repayments if they're required will, I think, not really be advantageous for anyone. Yeah, and I imagine there must be some difficulty. Um, I read somewhere that in Toronto, something like 20% of people are paying like 50% or more of their income on housing. So I can only imagine somebody who's had their in- their income decrease because of the pandemic is going to have a tough time paying back the arrears that they've accumulated over this year. Uh, so could be a big problem. Yeah, 
And I, I like one of the things like we often see as, as well is like a lot of the sort of look, look studies about rent. It's critical to distinguish, I think, between, um, you know, every unit in the market and looking particularly at, say, uh, relatively recent immigrants or younger folks, because I, uh, a lot of units have been in rent control for a very long time. So when you average all these sorts of things out together, sometimes like the stats on how many people are in quote unquote unaffordable housing is sort of uh, hides the fact that like almost every person who's gotten a housing unit in like the last five years, you know, so that's reasonably, um, even if middle income in the, in Toronto, like is probably uh, in unaffordable housing. And, uh, you know, the stats kind of when you aggregate all the buckets together with some folks who might have been in a rent controlled unit for 40, 50 years, uh, they can hide that uh, just the, the profound challenges that immigrants uh, and uh, younger Canadians who might be moving out of their home for the first time might actually be experiencing. Or, I mean, someone who you know, had, just had a kid and wants to move to a bigger space. And, you know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it will be interesting to see what happens with housing in the future. Uh, let's maybe go to um, the topic of the nonprofit sector. So your report discusses how the pandemic has impacted nonprofits in Toronto. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, and really, I, I hate to use the word unprecedented, but the word I think unprecedented challenges is, is again an appropriate phrase of that challenge of increased demand for a lot of social service organizations. And I think like social services ranges from, you know, if you have folks who used to run recreation programs for youth or like desperately trying to figure out how to keep in touch with them, how to provide, you know, ensure their mental health is, is working, you know, how to, uh, you know, support education where appropriate. Uh, the, they're all having these sorts of uh, real challenges where the revenue streams have really shrunk. So like the number of organizations that are saying that they're having revenue decline are, are huge. Uh, when we look nationally, uh, Imagine Canada did a uh, an interesting study early on in the pandemic showing that like the t- average revenue decline across all the organizations early on was thirty percent, whereas like in the previous like Great Recession we saw like a one percent decrease in revenue or something in that uh, ballpark. And when we looked at Toronto organizations, I think you know like all of the other challenges we're seeing in Toronto, like they're particularly hit by the high demand and particularly at risk of declining revenue because like a lot of them had social enterprises, whether it was you know a theater that sells tickets or you know a YMCA that sells uh, health and fitness memberships or childcare or camps or um, I mean you can sort of keep listing on and on and on, but all these revenues are gone, and a lot of times they're trying to uh, help. You know, as many folks as possible in that in that environment, and we saw particularly uh, small organizations reported a huge risk. So organizations with less than five hundred thousand dollars in annual revenue, about a quarter of them were saying that they're high risk of permanent closure. A lot of them said that they already closed the program or location permanently. A lot of those organizations are grassroots organizations. They're community-led organizations. They're the ones that have the strongest connection to the community. They're t- often working, uh, you know, directly with uh, in some of the most uh, marginalized communities in you know the city or you know in the country. And uh, I think like the, the challenges they're facing, it could be you know if you actually you know we lose a substantial chunk of it, like the representation and the voices of those communities will likewise be uh, I mean lost and. Um, I mean, the largest organizations, like they did say, like, you know, it's not a great financial situation, but very few of like the big organizations said they're going to go under. A lot of them said like they had to lay people off. They had to close the program. Uh, you see sometimes some of the folks who've uh, been around for a long time sold some real estate and things like that. Uh, and it's obviously great to be an organization that has that flexibility. 
But these small organizations often, you know, the people that they serve are the ones that have lost their jobs. So no one's donating. Uh, the people they serve are the ones who can't, you know, are struggling to eat. So they're desperately trying to find any food they possibly can to continue to provide for folks. And so I, I think like losing those sorts of organizations, I, I mean, it's kind of challenging because a lot of the, the organizations are ones that people haven't heard of. Uh, so it's kind of hard to, for folks to sort of uh, appreciate it the same way if, you know, as an organization that you have heard of is is going under. Uh, but like a lot of them are incredibly impactful and important to the folks in, in their local communities. And, um, you know, if, if uh, funders, philanthropists, et cetera, aren't uh, doing what they can to keep those organizations uh, alive, like we will lose something important that, uh, you know, it might take years and years and years to actually get back. Yeah. And I'm wondering, um, so once the pandemic uh once the pandemic eventually ends, which seems like a long time from now, but uh, like looking five to 10 years out, how do you think the nonprofit sector in Toronto is going to look different because of the pandemic? Yeah. And it's one of those things like it's difficult to prognosticate on what's going to happen. And I would say like for organizations that are looking at their strategy, everyone should be looking at a scenario analysis type approach of uh, there's a few conditions that they could happen or they couldn't happen and uh, they they all are going to have profound implications so if you know the 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 variants of covid are uh, you know something pops up that uh, isn't covered well by vaccines and uh, we you know then you have all sorts of ongoing challenges that might be uh, much lower in magnitude but potentially going on for who knows how much longer uh, or looking at other scenarios of what if people uh, come back in droves to uh, you know uh, you know culture youth programs and arts culture and arts and culture and et cetera. And like, there's a huge increase in demand. Like, so how do you look at that? And then obviously uh, for a lot of these organizations, the major source of funding for nonprofits and charities in Canada is the government, uh, provincial government, you know, uh, by far the largest, um, the federal government and uh, municipal government provide very important funds for local organizations as well. But, uh, you know, by and large provincial government, uh, is, is the big one. And when we look at, you know, the Feds having hundreds of billions of dollars of deficits, the uh, provinces having tens of billions in the city of Toronto and like 1.8 billion or whatever is the most recent number. Like the, the nonprofit sector, if the government, need, you know, enters austerity policies, what it will look like will be fundamentally different depending on what those uh, what the government does. And it's absolutely critical for their philanthropists to sort of support innovation and funders to sort of do what they can to get resources to keep organizations healthy and strong and all those sorts of pieces. But uh, there's nothing that would affect things more than how the government chooses to respond in the coming years. And I think that's a, a big scenario. And I think, you know, for a long time, and uh, a lot of us have been recommending folks like, you know, building social enterprises, building alternative revenue streams and that advice. Uh, <laughs> didn't work out so well right now. So, and I think a lot of the organizations that have been, you know, devastated are those that run social enterprises. So, um, you know, that's maybe if there's government cutbacks, what's needed. So, how do you actually uh, build the capacity to have those organizations come back thriving, and opposed to maybe not reopening ever? And uh, you know, what the nonprofit sector under these different scenarios could be could be very different. But I think you know, when we look at the generalization, like I would be shocked if. Uh, so many of the organizations we talk, spoke to said that technology is going to be a permanent part of how they operate. Like they've learned new things and they might be offering hybrid models of having both in-person and 
virtual sorts of events. But I think, you know, while everyone said they want to go back to uh, uh, in-person as soon as they can, I think everyone realized that virtual uh, is, is going to be fundamentally uh, part of uh, what the nonprofit sector needs to do. And the other piece, I think, you know, well, so many large national nonprofits are located in Toronto and Ottawa. And, you know, they hire, um, you know, recent graduates and pay them wages where you can't afford an apartment in Toronto. So, uh, and then, you know, they're shocked when a couple of years later people quit uh, and they're struggling to retain talent and you know, build talent. So I think for a lot of organizations that are not direct service provision, uh, this is a huge opportunity to realize like, yeah, you can have uh, a worker in the, you know, up in Sudbury or, you know, in Thunder Bay and it makes a very little difference uh, and you can have them effective, uh, you know, effectively contribute. And um, for a lot of organizations, I think that strategy of, okay, you know, we may not be able to pay people enough to, you know, thrive in Toronto. How do we uh, enable them to succeed as a new staff person and, you know, any community across the country when they're hiring? Yeah. All right. That's, that was a nice optimistic twist on uh, what had been pretty doom and gloomy. <laughs> Uh, I'm curious, though, um, is there a part of the nonprofit sector that has been the most affected by the pandemic? Yeah, and there's a number of different lenses that we could look at. And I would say, like, uh, I'll say, let's say four groups that have been particularly impacted. Uh, small grassroots organizations are definitely one. Arts and culture organizations, particularly ones that rely on fees, obviously another. And uh, sports and other organizations where uh, people are just not participating at all and, again, typically relying on fees is yet another area of uh, profound challenges. And then, like, just looking at the sort of uh, demand versus revenue cycle, I think, like, the food insecurity piece is one we already talked about. But, like, that combination of declining revenue with just utterly unprecedented increase in demand uh, is such a interesting uh, situation of uh, what's... Uh, and I mean, more broadly, a lot of the common themes of organizations that have been hit hard are ones that rely very much on in-person revenue streams. Uh, and obviously, everyone's been hit hard when they rely on in-person service delivery. But you can usually pivot sort of some in some way, some of the online service delivery a bit easier than like, you know, if you're a YMCA selling a health and fitness membership pass, like, you know, it's not quite the same trying to, you know, you can't use a treadmill, you can't use the facilities. If you're a, uh, you know, a uh, theater, you know, you know, the, the challenges of pivoting to like, let's do an online stream of, a, you know, a theater thing, like it's not, a, it's not an e easy pivot. And so a lot of them, um, like who relied on that revenue stream or the, the heavy, you know, in-person fundraisers as a, as another uh, example, like any of those sorts of organizations, like that's how you fund yourself. Like those are all going to be hit hard. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the other thing I'm, I'm curious about with the nonprofit sector is, you know, there was this conversation about racial justice that really happened um, over the summer and is still ongoing. And I'm wondering um, if you could talk about, how that conversation has gone in Toronto? Yeah. And I, I think like a lot of the things that we talked about in our uh, report were highlighting the challenges. And we, we, we interviewed dozens of uh, BIPOC leaders about the, the issue. And I mean, there was definitely a mixed sense of like some people optimistic of how much attention it was getting and maybe hoping that this would actually be the trigger for real change. And um, you know, there's so much attention and there's other folks, you know, who had been around a few cycles of this, 
who were very worried that like this would be a temporary thing, a bunch of money would flow now, and then it would disappear. So, I mean, when we talked to uh, uh, Manuel Mellis of the uh, Network for Advancement of Black Communities, I might be getting that name wrong. Like, so he, he talked about how he'd been in this field for almost 30 years, and he'd seen these cycles of suddenly a ton of money flowing to like programs for black youth, and then like three or four years later, the money's gone. The organizations that were started to respond to it start to uh, wither away, and I think. One of the quotes we had in the report was people talking about how like more than 100 organizations were created after the summer of the gun in 2005 in Toronto, which when there was a whole bunch of shootings and a whole bunch of money was invested in black youth and like less than, you know, uh, you know, five or six organizations might be still around from that. And there's this huge, huge investment, but because there wasn't that sustained uh, strategy for how are we going to keep these organizations around thriving and, you know, uh, doing everything they can need to succeed, there's a real challenge. And I think, um, there's, there was definitely that side, even of those folks who'd seen this before, who thought this might be the moment to do things completely differently, and that maybe we've learned from the mistakes. Maybe you know the sustained attention will mean that like funders, governments, philanthropists will realize like you can't just go in for a short period of time and then go on and find the new shiny thing. But you know if you want you know to change how like issues are in black and youth unemployment, you can't fund you know something for a year and then walk away like. You know, this is going to be a decade long or, you know, decades long challenge to continue to uh, make those inequalities um, less. Yeah. So I, I suppose that's maybe a lesson for any philanthropic organizations listening is uh, to provide sustained attention to this issue for sure. And one of the things I would say for anyone who is like a try who has the capacity to provide resources and funding is like the more you can signal for long-term commitment, the more organizations can plan and build the infrastructure in place to uh, actually be able to, you know, really and truly address these sorts of situations. And I think like there's increased attention and understanding that no single organization can fix a systemic problem. And so if you want to fix these problems, like organizations need to know like the funding and resources are going to be there for a long period of time. If they're going to be building these multi-year partnerships where they understand what each of their roles might be and, you know, looking at different aspects of the problem. Yeah. So whether you're a big funder or um, an individual donor, uh, that long run commitment is great. So smaller donors, you know, monthly donations are great. <laughs> I always want to plug that. Um, so I know you. there was so much detail in this report, and we haven't captured all of it in this discussion. So I just want to ask if there's anything that we missed talking about that you really think we should talk about. Yeah, the, one of the things that I think, uh, you know, there's quite a few points in this uh, conversation that we focus on some of the negativity. Uh, I, I also do want to highlight, like, you know, when we talk to all these individuals working in the nonprofit sector, like, they're incredibly impressive. And... Um, I mean, it was a great opportunity to, I mean, for me to be able to hear so many of their stories. And I mean, I think like some of how they've responded, you know, immediately and in a sustained manner to the challenges is just, uh, I mean, I think humbling. And uh, I really think, you know, it does speak to, um, you know, for folks who are wondering, you know, uh, what's going to happen next. Like we need to support these leaders because like they're incredibly impressive, smart, intelligent people who are giving everything they possibly can. And, uh, you know, 
you know, almost every single one of the organizations we spoke to, like, you know, you end up the conversation being like, well, that person's incredibly uh, intelligent and uh, I wish <laughs> I could uh, fund them as well. And I think like if I would encourage anyone to go through this, like find anyone we, we interviewed and quoted and go uh, donate to their organization because they're incredibly impressive. And, you know, if we're going to come out of this stronger, more resilient and uh, more equitable than ever before, I do think these uh, leaders are going to play a major role in that. Great. Yeah, that's a good optimistic note to end on. So I love it. <laughs> yeah, I just try to throw that, my uh, optimism in for like 30 seconds at the end. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's okay. People just have to listen all the way through to, to, to get the positivity. No, I think you said a lot of really positive things throughout this whole thing. Uh, this report must have been like, I know you, you were saying that you were so impressed with the leaders that you spoke to. And, you know, these organizations are doing really incredible work. And the resiliency that they're showing in this really difficult time is absolutely incredible. But I feel like this report must have been so depressing to write. <laughs> like really exhausting. And then you had a baby coming at the same time. <laughs> like, yeah. I, like, uh, I wouldn't recommend it to be uh, writing anything like this to anyone, to be honest. But uh, I, I do hope that folks are using it. And uh, I mean, we tried to outline as much as possible what could be done to make a stronger and better recovery. So I, I, we've had quite a bit of uh, like so many downloads, lots of uh, coverage and all that sort of stuff. So I do really hope uh, we we may were able to make a real contribution. I do sort of miss uh, some of the research I used to do or work that I used to do where, um, you know, you're just trying to like, how do you market something more effectively? How do you price <laughs> something to make more money? It's uh, sometimes a bit easier than... Uh, Fix the pandemic. <laughs> yeah. 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 The, the emotional labor that had to go into this report, I can't even imagine. So thank you for the work that you've done on that and for taking the time to speak to us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's, it's always interesting to hear, uh, again, with 100 and some pages. So uh, it's it's really interesting to see like someone who read through it, see what questions she uh, came up with it. <laughs> and I would really want to highlight like uh, this report was completely uh, made possible by the support of Toronto Foundation. I was the lead uh, researcher and author of it. But, uh, you know, they they recognize as part of their strategy of how they're going to respond to this pandemic, that this sort of intelligence is critical. Uh, you can see uh, if you look at a lot of their funding programs, you can see how it influenced uh, the types of programs they're running, the, the organizations they're prioritizing, the way they're going about, uh, you know, working with philanthropists and all these sorts of things. And um, I, I do think it was a very unique uh, research product in, in Canada. Um, and you know, I think a lot of folks have done various pieces of this. Uh, and I do uh, think that, like the work they did of uh, trying to recognize that this information needed to be there, even relatively early on to help shape recovery it is, um, I mean, it was a, a great uh, opportunity to be able to pull all of this together. And I, I get, I, you know, from a writing standpoint, trying to uh, find data sources uh, that didn't exist uh, is is not uh, the most uh, fun sort of thing. Because on top of everything else, like you know, uh, in the middle of the pandemic, like none of the data sources we typically rely on to write this sort of thing, like you know, none of them are just trying to like generally pick up these sorts of profound changes month to month. So we had to be very creative and identify new different data sources that would allow us to uh, see how. Um, things were changing in a very uh, quick basis. And part of that was getting so much data from nonprofits who shared like operational data. And I would say one thing that uh, this sort of piece hopefully will highlight to folks who are working in the nonprofit sector is like, 
you know, when you think about what your data can be used for, like it can be helped to understand systems. It sometimes can be used to help influence advocacy. You know, there's a lot of different things when you think of like information you may have. And a lot of times folks, are like, especially if things aren't going well, they may not necessarily be thinking, oh, I should share this widely. But uh, folks, uh, you know, who put that stuff out there, who shared that with us, I mean, I think a lot of the pieces uh, that we, we wrote got picked up in, you know, different media outlets by different public policy folks and stuff like that. And um, I think sometimes people don't realize how valuable their data could be. Um, and, uh, you know, some folks may not necessarily have the talent or skills or, you know, uh, resources to be able to do that. But those who did share with us, um, you know, I, I think it, it is an really interesting example of how you can do more with uh, information that may not necessarily be obviously uh, uh, how others would use it. Awesome. That's really cool. Thank you for taking the time to speak to us. And I can hear, I think your dog is ready to go for a walk. So (laughs) (laughs) I told you he'd show up at some point. (laughs) Is it a Zoom call without a dog? I don't think so. (laughs) So I think uh, at this point, we'll we'll say goodbye to you, Steve. Thank you so much for taking the time to, to stop by today. Thank you so much. 